Hey guys, I hope y'all are having a great week. Got a quick show announcement for you. So this week we are not going to be doing podcast trivia, uh, but we are going to be doing a giveaway. Um, it's not going to be this week. It's actually going to be two weeks from now. But essentially what we're doing is we're going to be giving away a new Ultra 400 backpack. Um, all you got to do uh, to be entered to win is hop on iTunes, uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review on there and detail your favorite episode and you will be entered to win a Ultra 400 backpack, uh, either a Gila or a Peregrine, whatever you, whichever one you want. Uh, so hop on iTunes, leave that review and you'll be entered to win. We're going to be giving that thing away uh, the first week of April for you. So hope you guys enjoy this episode with Andrew Skirka and y'all have a great week. Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Hey, you, should, you think that's bad? See Ryan on the phone in the office. Some people are just wired that way. Curious because it seemed because. Maybe you could first off kind of explain what you do uh, for yeah. listeners that don't have any experience with uh, with what you do. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I uh, I am forty years old, and in my twenties I was a, a dirt bag long distance thru hiker. So I started with like pretty um, uh, like I don't want to say beginner level, but like modest through hikes like the Appalachian Trail and the Colorado Trail, and then I started. Kind of doing harder and longer trips, so I um, did a 6,875-mile hike around the American West. I walked from uh, Quebec to Washington State, um, 7,800 miles in 11 months, um, and then I my last big long through hike was 4,700-mile 4, six-month trip around Alaska and the Yukon. So that was all in my 20s, and then I hit 30, and for whatever reason, I felt like that lifestyle had had an expiration date, and I needed to kind of become an adult. So in my 30s, I've spent a lot more time um, uh, working, and at this point, by far the biggest, um, the biggest uh, sort of uh, focus of my energy is a, a guiding program. So this year we ran, we had about 45 trips with about 350 clients, and we're running trips in California, Colorado, Southern Utah, West Virginia, and Alaska. Man, that's insane. So did you say? 4,700 miles in six months? Yes. Okay. Man, that's that's just yeah. insane. <laughs> I, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of miles. Yeah. That is. Yeah. So did you you just basically walked a big old circle? Did you have a route that you had planned beforehand or was it yeah, that it was type a, of thing? So that trip, yeah. So all the trips, so I'm, I'm very, I, I spent a lot of time in everything I do kind of plotting things out and planning. Um, like a, I'm a I'm very studious planner. So before I started any of those trips, I knew exactly where I was going to go. And there were a few times where I'd make some adjustments, but for the most part, kind of stuck to a plan. Uh, and that big trip in Alaska, it was, a, it was a big loop. It started up in Kotzebue, up in like way northwestern Alaska, mm -hmm. like up in the Arctic. And then it came uh, south down to the Alaska Range and then uh, southeast over to Juneau and then north all the way through Canada up into the, um, like the Yukon Arctic and then across the Brooks Range to finish the trip. That's insane. Yeah. So on that, are you just, every single mile is walking? 
Uh, it was, I started on skis and I skied the first, I think it was like 12 or 1300 miles. Okay. And then Cross I started in the middle. Uh, yeah, I had, um, it was like very, uh, like, cla- like old school, like, uh, nor- like backcountry Nordic. So I had okay. leather boots, leather three pin boots, um, uh, the, um, uh, like volley bindings, like clamp bindings, like 75 millimeter bindings. My skis were, um, 190 or 195 centimeters long and like. I think they were like, what was they, 60, 68, 58, 62 for, for head, head, waist, and tail. Um, metal-edged, uh, waxed, so it's like very old school. Like if you'd seen someone in Norway 50 years ago, they would have been using that, that setup. <laughs> so it was 12, it was 12 or 1,300 miles on skis, and then I uh, swapped out my skis for a pair of hiking shoes and a pack raft. And okay. Then uh, I used I used those two things for the rest of the trip. Um, there's one exception along the Yukon River. I rented a uh, I rented a sea kayak for like I'm trying to remember how many miles that was like 500 miles on the Yukon. So just because sitting in a sitting in a pack raft for you know a week straight is just is a nightmare. Oh, I'm sure. So just what little, what made you want to like was, was it just a Forrest Gump type situation where you're just like <laughs> I, I just feel like running? What um, what got you into that? Because, like, I got to be honest, to, like, to the average person, you know, um, that sounds pretty crazy, right? That it, you're it just going to plan 4,700 miles yeah. walk. Um, this is where I was in my life, where I could, you know, I loved, at the end of the day, like, you have to be motivated by love for the experience. Yeah. And um, while, the, while the, all of those trips helped put me where I am right now, there was no guarantee of that. And you never could have justified the day-to-day discomfort based on this prospect of some type of fame and fortune. Just no way. So you had to love being out there. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and it's not a bad spot to just be walking around. <laughs> right. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, there were, I, I, I still long for those days where uh, I was just like deeply immersed in a place and got to know these areas really well. I mean, I still, I still feel like, so my big long like through hiking days were, are 10 or 11 years behind me now and I still feel like a lot of my um like who I am and how I understand the world and the environment a lot of it goes a lot of it goes back to those to those trips well yeah I'm sure I mean without most of Alaska well I guess back then there probably weren't many cell phones or service everywhere but no I know I was still using pay phones yeah really Pull in a town, find a payphone, use like a calling card. Yeah, and just maps and and no. Paper did maps. you have like a digital GPS or anything? Uh, I had. I started so the um on the on the Alaska trip. So this is 2010. I started with a um. I had a GPS device. Okay. But it was a primitive. It basically was like it was coordinate system. So was, you're just playing Battleship. Mm-hmm. So you would um. You know, I had saved a couple. I had saved waypoints for a couple of like shelters that I knew about, or like towns, and then I could say like, well, how far am I from like this waypoint? Yeah. But it wasn't like m- you know modern systems where you'd have like this pretty map and pinch and scream, pinch and zoom phone or anything like that. Oh it yeah. Was ar- it was ar- but like relatively archaic. Yeah, I, I used to have one of those where it was just like walk this direction, walk north totally. for yeah. two miles, and you'll get there. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't yes. tell you if there's, you know, a three foot or a 300 nope. foot canyon right there or anything. No. Nope. Nope. Man, that's crazy. I'm sure you just learned some, some great woodsmanship skills. What, what's your background? So you, so you kind of grew up in Boulder, funny. Right? Yeah. No, I grew up in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Um, grew, okay. So yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to school in North Carolina. 
and then I w- we as a family like we did out like outdoor vacations but my parents weren't backpackers like we would do like the extent of it was like car camping and day hiking but we never made that like next step into backpacking okay so i learned to backpack in my early 20s and um you know thankfully or unthankfully um i had way more time than money and so i could afford to learn all of my own mistakes and like that's actually one of the things that we in the guiding program that we like sort of sell ourselves on that this is an opportunity to um, spare yourself all of those mistakes and to and to save time and money, rather than rather than sort of enduring all that hardship unnecessarily. So you know, I just when I started the Appalachian Trail, I was carrying like just an absurd amount of weight. I was carrying like all the wrong gear, um, and I didn't have like basic skills like um, you know how to uh, like how to find a good campsite or how to sort of poop properly outdoors or like really basic things, right? Like how yeah. much food I needed in a day. I, I had, I was just figuring all this out. Yeah. So there are some days where I was starving and, or like on just a pure sugar high the whole day and bonking all the time because I was eating like pop tarts. And, and, and then other, other times where I would like come into town and still have like, you know, three days worth of food in my pack just cause I just didn't, just didn't know yet. I was still working out. Yeah. You didn't, didn't have your system dialed in. Right. Which right. I'm sure with guiding people like there's so many people even in colorado which it's hard to get six miles from a road but even so there's a lot of people that every year they get lost just because they don't have things like that dialed in right yeah um so it's funny so i i felt like in my personal trips my my skill sets had like had gone like i really increased dramatically like super high-end skill set I, at least I thought that was the case. And then when I started guiding and became like a teacher, I realized like that my skill set was high, but it's, I, I wasn't at the point yet where I could explain it. So something that was very natural to me, but something that was more difficult for me to explain to someone else. And it's sort of, there's this, I think it, they always treat it like Aristotle. Aristotle says, um, uh, those, who, those who know do, and those who understand teach. And that is a difference. Like the, to be a teacher, you have to have a really like another level of understanding of the subject matter. Yeah. So what what got you into guiding? Was it just kind of ended your through hiking career and you needed something to do, or was there any specific? Well, I mean, yeah, I was looking for a way. I was looking. Uh, you know, it was it was a it was something that I had identified as being a possibility for earning a living. Mm-hmm. Um, I and so I started guiding for. Um, like I think, I think I started guiding in like 2008, 2009. There was an organization that I've, I jumped in with for a few for a few trips, and then I started guiding on my own after that. So in 2011, but at the time it was really like the first season. It was like I did three trips, and they were all like super ambitious, like outrageously ambitious. Like I did like a 13-day trip with pack rafts in Alaska, and I did the Sierra High Route and. We were in like the Wind River Range. Like it was like just absurdly ambitious trips. And then uh, 2012 is when I started kind of formalizing things a little bit and just like started to better understand the market. Okay. So we started offering, for example, like fundamentals trips. So three-day learning intensive intro level trips. And we get um, probably half the individuals on those trips have never been backpacking before. They've been okay. car camping, they've been day hiking, but they've never like spent the night overnight in a backcountry campsite. That makes sense. Yeah. So, and just for anybody listening, you do, so this is all pack rafting, 
or no. or well, <laughs> I shouldn't say all just, pack rafting. It's all yeah. either you know pack raft or or high country back, just long forum uh, expedition trips right is is that these are no these are um these this i think you describe i would describe as um it's a style of backpacking that you would do on your own okay so it's uh it's a we sort of our goal is to give our clients the skills to be able to do replicate similar trips of their own okay so we run three-day trips five-day trips seven-day trips um and the way and we sort of fragment things that we like the three-day trips are always going to be learning intensive but then our five and seven sometimes we have we have sometimes like a group of eight like ultra runners who like just charge hard and want to be like destroyed at the end of the day and then on other groups we'll have you know, individuals who are like average fitness in their 50s and 60s and we can kind of cater to all those sorts of groups because we've got enough volume at this point so so what's your when you get a group of people um, who want to go on a trip? How does how does that work? Do you do you advertise that you're going to be like doing this trip um, through the Sierras on the high route, or do you get a bunch of clientele and you're like, okay, these are these people, you know, these guys are all ultra runner, runners, so they have pretty good endurance. I'm going to take them here. Uh, what's your process for yeah, picking the, yeah, up these so the trips? Process, the process has evolved, but in general, what, um, so we put together a schedule at the beginning of the year. So it'll be, this, for the 2022 calendar, the schedule will go live in like the middle of November. Okay. And it's sort of a draft. It'll say like, we're planning on being in Southern Utah and we're going to run, we're going to run like two to four trips um, on the starting on say April 18th and finishing five days later. So I'm finishing on April 22nd. And then we're going to run another two to four trips starting on the 23rd and going to the 27th. And then we're going to run a seven day trip or two to four, seven day trips. So then that's kind of April. And then we would do the same thing. We're going to say, Hey, we're going to go to Alaska in the last week of June, beginning of July. Then we're going to go to California in the middle of July. And here are those dates or the three day dates or the five day dates or the seven day dates. And then we have, um, it's an open registration um, window that starts in the middle of December and it closes usually in like the last week of December or first week of January. And during these, during this open registration period, it's an, it's a, it's not a first come first serve. It's just an open register, open enrollment and people express their preference for the trip that they want, that they most want to be on as well as their backups. So for example, they might say, um, uh, last year I did a three-day trip with you. Um, this year I'd like to do a seven-day trip, and I'd like to go to California on this date. And if that doesn't work out, then I'd like to go to Utah in April on these dates. So they kind of like to first choice, second choice, and then we take all those applications. And at this point, we're talking like you know three, four hundred applications will come in in those couple weeks, and we'll assemble groups. So we'll take, we'll see where the critical mass is. We'll you know we'll look at the numbers and say like, hey, um, there's in this first this first block of five-day trips in Utah looks like we can run, we were saying we were going to offer two to four, looks like we can run three, and um, looks like one of the groups is going to be a moderate level intensity, and the other two groups are going to be like high intensity. And we'll just do that based on, on how the applicant pool looks. And that's sort of our way of getting a system that, um, where we can get the most number of people out in the field with us in on a trip that they belong um, as opposed to before, like at the beginning of the season saying, well, here's what we're going to do. And then trying to force people into that, which tends not to work as well. Yeah. So you're, so the clientele that you're typically getting, 
Um, is it, is it, does it span every, everybody? I know you said ultra runners. It's um, a pretty big range. Yeah. yeah. So we, so like, it's, um, I can just give it, give you a little bit of a breakdown. So we're looking at, a um, we have about 30 to 35% women and the remainder are men. Um, we have, uh, I'd say most clients fall between the ages of like, uh, 30 to 60 and then like maybe like late twenties into early, actually probably late twenties and early sixties would probably be like, that's probably like 80% of the clients. And, um, Maybe not, probably 90% of the clients are in that age range. Um, we do every once in a while have someone who's um, like a minor and they usually come with a parent. We sometimes have some very fit um, older individuals who can still um, do this, which is great. And then um, the ability levels range from literally like never ever, to, like I've never backpacked before to individuals where it's like, it's like, you know, Sonia, like, why are you coming on this trip again this year? Like, we, you know, you could, you could do this at this point. We've given you all the skills. You could totally do this on your own. And they'll say, well, like, at this point, it's a service. Like, you, you give me, you tell me where to be. You tell me the food to bring. The food to bring. You tell me what gear I need. You pull the permits, and you, and you pair me with seven other fun people. So you get the, you get the whole variety then. Get the whole variety, yeah. So it, it's, and we. You know, we've created a program that's flexible enough to accommodate almost all of them, which is nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I can see that being a very important thing. We were kind of talking before we started recording here, but um, I was expressing that, you know, coming from other industries where there are guides, you know, like I don't think of, I mean, obviously mountaineering, there, there's definitely guides. You think of guides being there. And I guess it sounds like you do a lot more like through hiking long forum backpacking trips and stuff. But uh, for me, coming from, you know, hunting, fishing, I could see those being more, you know, you need a guide for that because there's mm -hmm. so much equipment that goes into it. Um, but it kind of, like once you kind of venture into that backpacking world, you realize just like with everything, there's so many little things that it's so much safer to have somebody else, some crazy guy in their twenties hiking forty seven hundred miles, mm -hmm. figuring out all the all the wrong things to do and t telling you what not to do. So I can see how that's super valuable for some people. Yeah, I think most for most people, like backpacking isn't um, so unlike hunting, fishing. Like you can if you don't have any skills, like you could probably still hack it and get your like you're still going to end up probably safe on the other side. Um, I think for a lot of our clients, they're just interested in um, just quickly accelerating up the learning curve and um, avoiding uh, either, you know, avoiding like those unnecessary beginner level mistakes. Um, and then a lot of clients too are interested in taking on a route that they might not feel comfortable doing on their own. So for example, like um, going up to Gates of the Arctic National Park in Alaska, like that just totally freaks even experienced backpackers out because they're like, I've never done grizzly bears. I've never hiked that extensively off trail. Um, I, I don't understand like the topography at all in Alaska. I can't, I couldn't look out over a landscape and tell you where there's good walking and where there's bad walking, but I understand that there's a lot of bad walking mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know how to avoid it. Um, and then like in the lower 48, a lot of the clients are really interested in like doing off trail travel. So they think are competent and following trails, but they don't, know how to find good routes and how to like navigate off trail okay yeah uh do you do you do a lot of expeditions here in colorado 
Not that many. We've sort of we sort of struggle with um, a location in Colorado, believe it or not. Yeah. So we've been running trips down in uh, Rio Grande National Forest for the last two years, and this year we started um, in 2021. We um, opened a new location in Sand Dunes, and um, but we, you know, Colorado is a, due to both its um, topography, but even more than that, its its mining history. Um, the land here is very fractured. And the way that it's, and by when I say fractured, it just, um, there's basically like a highway or a grout or a Jeep road or a ski resort or, or a town, like in every sort of valley and mm. over every pass. Right. I mean, like just. Like, yeah. It's not like Idaho where you can go up into the Satus. Yeah. Or, or the high Sierra or yeah. the Moon river range or, or greater Yellowstone. I mean, they're just. Just people have been are in every little pocket of the state, so it's kind of a tough state for us to find locations to guide because it's. I think Colorado is a lot better set up for like day hiking and like trail running than it is for like multi-day, like a five or seven-day backpacking trip. Yeah, where you can like start from a trailhead, and you can w circle back to that trailhead in a pretty um, elegant loop, and um, you don't cross a lot of roads, or s you know along the way. And that's just hard to do in Colorado. It is. I mean, you know, the, you can do some 14ers and stuff like that, but it seems like basically the farthest you're going to get from the road is like, you know, eight miles or something. Yeah. And it's just... Right. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. If you're lucky. Uh -huh. If you're lucky, yeah. especially yeah. not down there in Boulder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So a lot of... Yeah. Just think about... So like you know, the, the front range of Colorado is a classic example where... Yeah, you have like the the front range itself. So like Rocky Mountain and the Indian Peaks and the James Peak Wilderness areas, like they're beautiful, like world class. But it's this narrow ridge line. Yeah. And you know, you can't um you can walk linearly um along the along the divide and to some degree um like pass and valley routes on the west side, but um it's pretty difficult to like to go very far without hitting things. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, the only the only place in the state where um, that I think has that girth is down in the San Juans. Oh yeah, and and there's some permitting difficulties down there that kind of prevent us from um, probably accessing the places we'd really like to access. How so? Is that just because you can't get like a guiding license exactly. for yeah, it's commercial, it's commercial guide permits? And yeah, in the particular case of San Juan National Forest, they're over allocated. Oh really? So they're not they're not issuing new outfitter guide permits. I'm sure a lot of those are going to hunting guides and stuff, right? Hunting guides are just folks who've been in it for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, but their their user days are, my understanding is that their user days are being decreased as well. So it sort of a, can be a tough, you know, a guiding outfit sort of lives, lives and dies by their commercial permits. Mm -hmm. So um, changes in the commercial permitting policies can have like huge implications for, for your business and your livelihood. Yeah. Um, I do want to, I know you're kind of tight on time here, so I want to get into something that Kevin was bringing up here. <laughs> um, so this is something that um, might seem like a joke to people, but it is very much not. Uh, and that is, and it, it has larger implications too, just with waste and stuff like that. I'm talking about shitting in the woods. And um, the, so Kevin our our owner here at seek outside he wasn't able to join us today but he did text us 
and he was kind of filling me in on your whole backcountry bidet idea. Uh, if you want to break that down for us, and it's entire, <laughs> sure. we'd, we'd yeah, love it. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. Yeah, so it's not really an idea. It's actually, interestingly, it's kind of what, what uh, the entire developed world does, except for, the, except for Americans. Like, Americans love their toilet paper, and the rest of the world is like, why would you use toilet paper? Um, so, let me, so this is part of a larger conversation, how to poop properly in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, this is a really important topic, and I think anyone who takes other people into the outdoors should should develop their own best practices and, um, and to not assume that the individuals that they're hiking with or, or fishing with or hunting with sort of have, sort of really understand how to do it well. Um, it's uh, one of the ways I talk about pooping in the woods. So it's, it's easy to do, but it's harder to do well. And when I say harder to do well, what I mean is doing it in a way that's, that's not going to either harm water sources or, or probably even more, more um, frequently than that, it's going to create some negative experience for other users. So mm. no, one, no one likes finding someone's dirty toilet paper or their poop spot in the woods. So, so, how, do um, you, so how do you do it? Yeah, so, we t- so the first step that we t- talk about is, um, is sort of, um, finding a location. And um, most of us are pretty regular poopers. Like we kind of know when, when during the day we're going to have to poop. So for me, it's like I'm a morning pooper. I know that pretty quickly after you're going vertical in the morning, I'm going to have to go poop. Mm-hmm. So I've already like the night before maybe have thought about where I'm going to go. And um, I will always try to find some place that is um, a super inconspicuous pooping spot. And and by this, I mean some place where no one else is going to want to, no one else is going to want to camp there. They're not going to want to take a break there and they're not even going to want to poop there. So some place that's just like, no one else would think to poop there. And if you're in a really high use area, this is going to require walking for some distance before you can find um, before you can find an area like that. Because everyone knows of like like the lazy poop trails. Like they're the, the trails left by the lazy poopers who are like they're in a camp in a designated camp, and then there's trails that just sort of like go out the back of camp. And those are just like lazy poopers who are like, oh, well, I'll just walk like 20 feet out in the woods and go here. And that's kind of like, that's just not, that's not kosher. No. So go find some like super inconspicuous spot and you want to find a place, um, you know, leave no trace protocol officially is like six to eight inches deep and good luck to you digging a six to eight inch deep hole. So I think probably the more important thing is finding a, a location that is really out of the way and that's far from water and then a place that has some biologically rich soil. So either like some pine duff or some leaf duff um, and then scratch out a, a hole and try to get at least a couple inches deep. Um, I just think in most environments, six to eight inches, unless you have like literally like a pick, like a spade, it's yeah. just not going to happen. So I think it's kind of like a, I think we like calling it, I think LNT protocols actually kind of like shoot themselves in the, like or are, are counterproductive because everyone just gives up on six to eight inches because it's so, it's like just a, like, it's not a reasonable goal. Especially so, in rocky country. I mean, you're exactly. Not. Yeah, you know, where it's <clears throat> rocky or rooty, or like, um, or like in the alpine, where the where the soil is just like like baked hard. Mm-hmm. So, so again, location, location, location. Some place that's like far from far from where you are. And then, um, as you're taking your walk to your location, we always recommend grabbing some natural materials along the way. So, like um, uh, smooth rocks, sticks. Um, leafy vegetation and I could go into more detail about all these things if you but like we don't have that much time um but anyway so um, natural materials maybe like 
five to ten pieces worth of natural materials. That's probably like a good, a good start. And that is um, to also cover up where you're. No, going. I'll get there. Also, okay. I'll also get there. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, just and also, uh, I just want to step, yeah. take one step back here. <laughs> um, why? So, before we get into where you're looking for, yeah. Why is it? So you're you're mostly looking for a good spot to poop for mm -hmm. aesthetics and so that other people have a an enjoyable experience. But are there also uh, environmental aspects to us? Because I, I see a lot of people, you know, they think about toilet paper. They're like, oh, you know, it's just gonna it's biodegradable. It'll be gone in a few years. Are there are there environmental concerns with leaving paper and and your so feces there are, out? Yeah, so good good question. Um, so the concern about feces is mostly related to water. Mm -hmm. So you want to be at least 200 feet away from water. Now, all 200 feet aren't created equal. So if it's, if it's um, you're pooping on a granite slab and you're 200 feet, of water, uh, 200 feet away from water, well, guess what? So like that, you know, the, the poop is just going to like migrate down the granite slab in the water and or on, when, next time it rains, right? Mm -hmm. Versus like 200 feet of sand, like your poop is going to get filtered out by the time it gets into the water. Yeah. So it's 200 feet aren't created equal, but 200 feet is a good, good rule of thumb. And then as far as the toilet paper thing goes, there actually, there's some environments where your toilet paper is actually is not going to decompose or it's not right. going to decompose quickly. Like the Arctic. So for example, like sure. Uh, Arctic or it, well, it depends on the Arctic. So like I'd say in Alaska, it actually decomposes reasonably well because it's so wet there and it, there's a lot of like topsoil. Um, really? But I'm thinking more like, um, like the Alpine in Colorado, like it tends to be pretty dry. There's not a whole lot going on up there. Uh, Southern Utah, it's just a bunch of sand. Um, mm -hmm. The High Sierra, like Yosemite, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, Indian National Forest, all those places are super dry. They're basically like alpine deserts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the Appalachians do much better with decomposing things. Pacific Northwest does well. So, um, so there is some like some regional considerations here too. Okay. And um, uh, I don't want to like, you know, to maybe to be realistic, um, you could be a little bit less cautious about your use of toilet paper if in West Virginia versus Yosemite National Park. Yeah. Especially if, especially if you're out there in like August or September when it's super dry. Because of the wetness and it's going to yeah, yeah, your degrade. toilet paper is not going to decompose if it hasn't rained in two months and it's not going to rain for another two months. Yeah. And there's no, and there's no water in the topsoil. And, and so the concern with water, um, for anybody that, that doesn't know, I mean, the main concerns are human-related illnesses, say, like, you know, back in the old day, back in the old days, uh, contaminated water sources was where polio came from. It's where a lot of those major diseases that, you know, were, were really bad for people came from, right? Is, and is that kind of what you're thinking? Are there any... Yeah, it's, it's diseases that we would associate with like third world countries nowadays. So like, or yeah. like um, places that have like some big natural disaster and they don't have access to clean water. So things like cholera, mm -hmm. uh, giardia, it's basically, it's a fecal to oral issue. So you have stuff in your poop that gets in the water and then other, and other humans or animals drink it and keep passing it around. Mm -hmm. Okay. So. All right. So go back to the, uh, go okay. back to your process of finding a spot. Yeah. So we, so we have our location, we've grabbed our natural materials. We're also bringing with us, um, about a quarter liter of water um, and some either some soap or hand sanitizer. Soap is better. Hand sanitizer is a little bit more convenient. Um, so if you think about it this way, um, if someone pooped on your face, would you, um, would you just wipe it off with a paper towel and put some hand sanitizer on it? Or would you go rub it or would you go rinse it off with soap and water because <laughs> okay. that depends on who you are <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so soap and water is the answer on this one yeah. but san sani like will like 
you know, it's more convenient. Anyway, so um, so then we you you dig your spot, and you can either like um, I usually just use the back of my sole, and I'll find or back of my heel, and I'll use like I'll find a soft area so I can kind of dig down into that. Um, if in some places you might be forced to like roll a rock, so like pick up a rock. That's generally not great though, because there's usually like ants and spiders and other things underneath the rock. So you generally that's kind of that's a convenient way thing to do, but it sometimes can be difficult for like the local disruptive the local, uh, to the wild the, mm-hmm, ecosystem exactly. yeah yeah um and they and they if they dislike you dislodging their rock they certainly don't like you pooping in their home in their home too yeah, that's the other piece <laughs> yeah yeah so um then you you go ahead and do your business in in the hole or if you're having an emergency maybe you could go outside the hole and then and then scrape it in afterwards and then as far as the cleanup goes, so what our recommendation is to, um, you start off in using na- all those natural materials that you picked up, so the leaves, the rocks, the sticks. Um, usually I'll just go with like, I'll just have kind of like one. So and it's, it's very sort of location dependent. So for example, like in Colorado in September and, and in the high Sierra in September, you're probably looking at sticks because we don't have like good leaves anymore. Um, but like if you're in Colorado in August, then like the corn lily leaves mm, are yeah. awesome. Um, they are toxic if you're if you're pregnant livestock and eat them in like the second week of gestation. But I don't think there are any issues with it using it as toilet paper. So something like corn lily is fantastic for toilet paper. But you can only find that like you know say uh, July August mm-hmm. in Colorado. Um, and then and other places are going to have other considerations too. So like what the leaves you might use in West Virginia are going to be a little. And I just say West Virginia because it was just there a couple weeks ago. Um, they're going to be. It's going to be a little bit different there than it is in Colorado. Then it's going to be different in, in Washington State. And yeah. the rest. Um, so ninety percent of your cleaning is with the natural materials, and like all the heavy lifting. And you have like an infinite amount of natural materials you could use. So if you have like if you've got like good corn lily leaves, you could use like six, seven, eight, ten of them. And like by the time you like you're getting down to number ten, it's like basically just like air wiping. Mm. There's like nothing coming off on it. Yeah. And then, um, and then you're going to finish um, sort of a, a so-called um, polish through your mirror using the backcountry bidet, because the issue is that um, you know if you're not if you're not using the backcountry bidet, um, ideally after you, uh, right after you poop, but then at least during the day at some other time, you're going to get stinky, you're going to get itchy, and you're much more vulnerable to um, chafing because you've got like toilet paper shards you've got hair you've got fecal matter that kind of like stays in the system so the backcountry bidet gives you like your your butt afterwards is like shower clean yeah and um if you use soap um and if you're going to use soap do it please do it far from water sources but if you use soap then you're even like 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 shower it's like you just took a shower yeah it's just like you took a shower. So my, my personal experience with the backcountry bidet is that um, my butt has just been way happier since I started doing this. And now I'm not using toilet paper, so I'm not, I'm not leaving it out there. I'm not having to pack it out. Um, other people aren't finding it. Um, but I think the bigger thing is just that it's a better experience having a really clean butt as opposed to having a butt that is itchy and uh, you've got like the chafing, like the ring of red chafing yep. around your butthole. It's called, <laughs> called mon- monkey butt. Um, and you kind of stink. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Well, and yeah. especially, you know, 13 days worth of that without being in the shower. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's sure. going to be bad. There, it's it's going to be terrible. Yeah. Like, yeah, terrible. Yeah. So, so just, you know, it's just good hygiene. I mean, you would like, you know, there's no like, um, 
like, yeah, if you're out for 13 days, it's a long time to be out without washing your butt. Exactly. So, so yeah. do you have a certain water bottle type that like nope. you just take an algae? No, I just, I just take a, um, <clears throat> I take a, like a smart water bottle and I loosen the, loosen the cap a little bit on the threads Okay. and then, um, kind of lift it at like a 45 degree angle at the top of my butt crack. And then I grab water with my left hand, my, my designated dirty hand. And then I'm cleaning myself with that water that's coming down. And I, and I'm like, and I'm not splashing here. Like I'm actually like making contact and like rubbing the way that I would in the shower. Okay. I, yeah. See, I, you and know, that, I would think that if you were to bring like one of those green Gatorade bottles, cause mm -hmm. I don't, have you ever been to Europe? No. Okay. Well, yes, but I've no, I'm not familiar with the green Gatorade well, bottles. So this is, the, this okay. is a bidet thing, yeah. right? So like, yeah, it, I've been to Europe and you know, bidets are everywhere. Yeah. And it's it's pretty forceful uh, shoot of water yes. that comes out. So I think like right. a green Gatorade bottle, like I'm sure you've seen, you know, NFL games or sports games sure. where they're they're squeezing that yeah. water bottle, like a squeeze bottle. Right. If you had a designated right. squeeze bottle, that would be so great. So there are actually on on Amazon, there are very inexpensive um, travel bidets that you can buy. Really? And um, I tend to find I don't like all that like jet propulsion stuff going on. <laughs> I just think suddenly there's like water everywhere. everywhere yeah. And, um, so I think it's just a little bit, and I don't want to carry like another contraption for just so, cause we're always sort of concerned about weight, but yeah. that's certainly some people want to, if you're like bidet curious, but you're not at the point yet where bidet you want to be, <laughs> where you want to be, uh, you know, touching your, touching your asshole with your hand, um, which is a pretty natural thing to do. But if you're not there yet, then you can, you know, you can look at one of those. Yeah. Well, that's probably where I would think that that would be the starter pack. And then <laughs> the, you go. Yeah, the, yeah. where you're <laughs> yeah. at is kind of like the advanced right. level. Yeah. yeah. And so obviously you're all, now your listeners are like, well, now you have like this, you know, this like, butt, like this like poop covered hand and um, technically you do, you'd actually be surprised just how little like fecal matter is going to end up in your hand at the end of this, because it's just, just like you've wiped almost all of it away and then you've used like plenty of water. So it's diluted, but yes, now you have this dirty hand. So you want to be washing that hand with soap or hand sani at the end of the process. And then you're, you're all done. Well, I think, you know, all jokes aside, I mean, it, it's kind of an interesting subject to talk about because I, I could imagine, you know, if you bring this up to somebody, their first hike or whatever, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. It's going to be an uncomfortable situation, right? I mean, like, it's just a little awkward. You're talking about shitting, but sure. I, it's a really... You know, it's a... It is such an important thing to talk yeah. about. Yeah, and it's one of those, yeah. like, sacrifices where... <clears throat> You know, like you want to keep these places wild, right? And especially in places like Colorado, where <clears throat> they do get, you know, one trailhead can see, you know, 30, 40 backpackers yep. in a weekend in the summer. And Easy. all those people yeah. are, are, you know, taking toilet paper mm -hmm. out there. Yep. And it's just a fact that out of those people, there's going to be some waste left, you know, that somebody's going to leave a you know, a Frida, like a, a cliff bar wrapper or something like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I think this concept is just about, first off, I mean, it, it really is important to stay clean out there. I mean, you know, you can be, especially if you're hiking a long way every day, uh, that is something if you, ha if you're chafing, uh, if you're uncomfortable, it's going to be something that's going to you know maybe it won't keep you from walking the whole distance but it could i mean it could be it, it could, could get bad enough it, to where you're like I, and it could I gotta, just be really uncomfortable yeah and or, you want to yeah. you want to yeah. make this experience the best as possible yep. but it's also about just 
thinking about other people, um, you know, everybody's that's been in the woods long enough has, has walked up on a, on a dirty totally. area. And it's, it's yep. just like one of those things where it's like, man, like it's, mm-hmm. it's a very easy thing. What I've always done is, is as long as there's not like fire danger, um, I just take a little lighter and burn my toilet paper in the spot. And I've always, but that was before I was introduced to the backcountry bidet. I think I'm I'm going that way from now on. But um, the the fire, lighting your toilet paper on fire is, I think it's an accessible practice in certain areas, but it's something that we probably should be really careful about encouraging just because of, I mean, especially given some of the fires that we've had in recent years. I mean, this is like, this is no joke. And like, sometimes the conditions are so bad out there that toilet paper could totally start a wildfire. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's a very light weight substance and Mm -hmm. you never know you could be looking away and and an ember flies away and it's just totally i mean you know you gotta you gotta be careful with it um so do you have any uh any books on this coming out or any how did how did kevin find out about this there is there is a blog post i put up recently about it um we've got some videos and stuff yeah okay um there's uh it's yeah there's it's up on the website um it's something that we you know honestly like we started teaching so in the past in past years we'd always had emphasized like natural materials and then packing out your toilet paper um kind of at least emphasizing like the natural materials because then Mm -hmm. you're using a lot less toilet paper yeah um but this year just we went full-on bidet in our on our guided trips and we like it's been really well received like a lot of clients are just like totally on board with it they're like this is awesome i feel super clean like i don't smell as bad my butt isn't itching and uh, and I don't have to pack, pack up my toilet paper. Yeah. So, like win 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 win. Yeah, you're saving weight right there. It's just, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Well, well, Andrew, I know you got to go here soon, but I really appreciate you getting on, and we'd love to have you on again where we have a little bit more time. But um, man, I think I think this is a subject, especially the the backcountry bidet is is something that at least amongst the outdoor crowd, I've been hearing a lot more about it recently you know it's kind of been gaining traction as weird as that is um it you know it's it's a it's an issue that we got to solve and hey man yep. uh, i'm telling you bring one of those green green gatorade bottles out <laughs> next time <laughs> uh, and, uh, and if it sprays everywhere i'll let you know all right all right <laughs> so all right, right well, i appreciate your time thanks for having me on yep maybe get on yep of course have a have a good uh good winter and enjoy your trips <laughs>